Hello and welcome to Foxed, the practical podcast series from Fox & Partners. In these podcasts, we'll be looking at scenarios from our day-to-day practice, offering solutions to some of the most pressing partnership and employment law questions we hear from our clients. Our goal is to offer a digest of some of today's key issues in a succinct and practical style that we hope you'll find useful and engaging. Thanks for listening. On this episode of Foxed, we are discussing senior executive and partner well-being. We felt this was a highly relevant and timely topic as we start to transition out one of the greatest upheavals to working life we have ever experienced. I'm Katrina Watt, a partner at Fox & Partners, specialising in contentious partnership and employment law. I'm delighted to be joined by our guest speaker, the wonderful Nikki Swan from Mindful Swan. Nikki is a coach, speaker and corporate wellbeing consultant. Formerly a senior manager in the Big Four, Nikki is adept at helping her clients cut through complexity to successfully navigate career challenges and maximise their potential. Hi, Nikki. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Kat. Thanks for inviting me to discuss what I feel is a really pertinent and important topic. So Nikki and I are going to be first introducing the topic and discussing some data on senior leadership mental health post-pandemic. Secondly, discussing the principles that are fundamental to ensuring a culture of well-being, which translates ultimately into business performance. And thirdly, sharing experiences from our firm's work as senior level disputes lawyers, in particular, how catalysts for disputes are often interlinked with what are well-being issues. To wrap up, we're very lucky Nikki will provide some takeaways which are valuable for any senior individual or firm interested in supporting its leaders. So we know that there has been a significant mental health decline amongst the working population since the start of the pandemic. We have seen employers seeking to provide mental health and well-being support for the employees. However, as is often the case, senior leaders are not always included in that support. Leadership can be a lonely place to be. Senior leaders are less likely to ask for support, conscious of how many people are reliant on them. At this juncture, it's probably worth pausing to examine what we actually mean by well-being. It's a phrase that is used a lot in the context of the workplace experience. Nikki, maybe you can help shed some light. I'd love to try. So if you type this into Google, there's not really a consensus on a single definition. And what I think is important to point out here is well-being is not just about the absence of illness but it's actually far more complex it includes mental physical emotional and social health factors so people's general life satisfaction happiness and contentment and so that's why the lip service of fruit bowls just isn't the answer to deal with well-being thanks nikki and i like the bit about the fruit bowls (laughs) i feel it's always worth looking at relevant data as a starting point When we were putting together this episode, we looked in particular at some interesting observations from a report jointly produced by Deloitte and LifeWorks called Wellbeing and Resilience in Senior Leaders, a Risk to Post-Pandemic Recovery. In order to prepare the report, I think around 1,100 senior leaders globally were surveyed. Here are the interesting findings. First, eight in 10 leaders reported exhaustion indicative of burnout risk and over 50% were contemplating exiting their role. The top stressor was said to be an increase in work volume compared to pre-pandemic levels, and the second was a desire to provide adequate support for the well-being of other staff. 
Second, more than half were concerned about workplace stigma having an impact on their careers if they had a mental health issue and anyone were to find out. Third, six in ten did not make time for their personal well-being, either consistently or at all. Nikki, what is your experience of senior leaders in dealing with their own well-being issues and how this impacts their wider team and organisation as a whole? Yeah, there's something here about cognitively knowing about wellness and well-being issues. In my experience, leaders who are conscious of the issue of well-being aren't always as good at practicing what they preach and can lack self-compassion. And it's this disparity between cognitively knowing something and actually applying it to yourself. And there's two issues with this. One is the whole idea of leading by example that is so important. And I'm sure you might be aware of the management consultant, Peter Drucker, who coined the phrase, culture eats strategy for breakfast. So we really teach people by our behavior as opposed to just our words. And if as a leader, you're available 24-7, then you inadvertently create the same expectation for your team. So the second thing is as a, as a leader, when you're more and more focused on the thing that's stressing you out, being maybe working around the clock, you stop making time for the micro habits and practices that actually build your own personal well-being. So very quickly, these things can go out the window. And if you imagine a funnel, you become more and more focused on the stressor, you go further and further down that funnel until unfortunately, you might actually end up in the burnout zone. And you may then need to take time off work, either, you know, in the short term or the long term, which isn't good for anybody. That's really interesting, Nikki. What difference do you think the last 18 months has made in your view? So I think it's really exacerbated issues that were already a problem. I think that our work lives and home lives have been becoming increasingly blurred with the advent of all this great technology that we can all have at our fingertips now. And in the last two months, this has really heightened because the places that we normally use for our leisure time have become our workspaces. And now I think it's really imperative that we actually look at building in boundaries and healthier approaches to work going forward. I've spoken to so many individuals over this last period of time who have actually increased their own workload by being available around the clock and actually because work has become something, you know, something to do during the pandemic. So people are just working endlessly. Laptops and working spaces have, have merged, as I said, into those previously spaces that were reserved for leisure. And there's this temptation of having a quick check on how things are progressing if your laptop's set on the kitchen table. And as well as that, people might fall into the habit of getting out of bed and just getting on with work and being productive because it's an option and not building in time to resource themselves when they previously might have had a a commute as maybe that wasn't always pleasant, but they may have listened to a podcast, read a book or gone to the gym before work. And just by missing that out, we then aren't as resourced to deal with our, you know, day to day. 
Do you think that working on your own, as opposed to being surrounded by a team with more scope for collaborating, or even just an ability to sense check with colleagues, makes a difference? Yeah, so at the beginning of the pandemic, I seem to recall everybody talking about how this was great for people who perhaps identify themselves on the introversion scale. And they were quite happily having this extra time to work on their own, whereas those on the extroversion scale weren't. However, I think two years in, it's very different because we're human beings, we're wired for connection and not having that face time with people, not hearing people's voices, we don't connect as much. And, and the voicing is important because I think we've become very reliant on instant messaging services in the office. And there's become these habits that have formed around communicating using those means rather than picking up the phone or rather than having face to face. And it might have been very convenient but actually all of these things, again, they're like micro habits that all build up. And if you aren't having connection with people, that's going to affect your, your well-being. Because as I said earlier, it's this big mix of you know, physical, mental, social and emotional factors. I can absolutely see that. And I think that um, WhatsApp all of a sudden has become um, a business tool as, as much as it is a social tool, which I think is quite an interesting development. Um, Nikki, in relation to the behaviours of senior leaders, do you find that sporting metaphors are often used? It's something that I, I've heard quite a lot and I'm interested in your view. Yeah, I mean, of course, they're, they're often used for performance, teamwork, and there's definitely a lot of things that we can learn from athletes and elite sport. However, where I think that's unhelpful is that senior leaders aren't preparing for one game, a match at the weekend, or an Olympics where they have to be at their peak performance over a particular period of time because they're dealing with an everyday event. However, where the sports analogies are helpful is when we consider that to reach peak performance, athletes absolutely non-negotiable, they incorporate rest as well as training. And not only this, it's it's really factored into it, to everything they do. And that's something that's overlooked, I think, in the case of the corporate world, where individuals are motivated by accomplishment and achievement. And so perhaps they don't show as much respect to those rest periods. A really interesting reference here is if anybody's familiar with the sports psychologist, Dr. Pippa Grange, that worked with the England football team. In her book, Fear Less, she refers to the battle narratives that have become prolific in society. We all talk about nailing it, smashing it, slaying it, killing it. And especially in sport, in the city and in the legal world. But have we taken this too far? And I think this is really an opportunity to think about the systems that we've built because this is how they've been built. And it's it's time for a radical rethink. And I, you know, I don't think I'm being original in saying that. I think that is really important that we take this opportunity to rethink how we're operating. I think the concept of the radical rethink is really interesting. In preparation for this episode, we also looked at a survey carried out by Lawcare, which is the legal mental health charity. And they surveyed over 1,700 legal professionals in the UK, Republic of Ireland, Jersey, Guernsey and Isle of Man between October 2020 and January 2021. 
The report talks about this period as being an opportunity to really look at our systems. And I think it chimes with the points about the radical rethink. In that survey, the majority of participants who were all lawyers, I understand, um, 69% had experienced mental ill health, whether clinically or self-diagnosed, in the 12 months before completing the survey. Of those who had experienced mental ill health, only 56% said that they'd talked about it at work. The most common reason for not disclosing mental ill health at work was the fear, again, of stigma that would attach results in career implications and potentially financial and reputational consequences. Interestingly, 48% of those in a position of management or supervisory capacity that were surveyed had received leadership, management or supervisory training. Nikki, what do you say to that? Well, first of all, I think 69% is a really staggering figure and goes to show how important it is to address this issue. I'm pleased that 56% were able to talk about it at work. But sadly, you know, these reports demonstrate that stigma is still a really big issue. Vulnerable shares from leadership can be helpful, but not everybody wants to, nor should they feel they have to, nor arguably are they necessary. Perhaps using more terms like mental fitness and mental wealth and embedding these in company cultures as part of positive well-being practices may be more achievable. So rather than looking at the problem, we're looking at it in a positive sense. And this goes back to this whole concept of tone from the top and leading by example. Considering how leaders make the most of well-being resources that are actually available to them, and if they aren't segregated between them and, and the rest of the employees, perhaps creating a separate tier of support that's not something that's only used in a triage scenario, which, yeah. you know, unfortunately is commonly the case. And this is where the coaching space is helpful, not only in dealing with challenging situations, but just having somebody to mirror your thoughts as a thinking partner can be really helpful in the day to day because we all fundamentally have blind spots. Thank you. I think that's really interesting. So what else do we know um, helps towards setting the right well-being culture in an organisation from your experience? So we've mentioned leading by example being a big component. Open conversations are so critical, not only to be clear about expectations and response times and, and work times, but also in creating psychological safety. And this is something that the Law Care Report also mentioned that's key. After all, people need to feel safe to share when things don't go to plan or mistakes are made. And I wonder how this appears in Disputes Cat, which is maybe something that you'll go on to talk about. So something that I've recently become aware of is something called the Mindful Business Charter, which has an, quite an impressive list of signatories. And they have four pillars, um, openness and respect, smart meetings and emails, respecting rest and mindful delegation. And they're encouraging organizations to spread the word. And I think something important here is the conversation around setting unrealistic deadlines or false deadlines. How many times have you been asked to do something and it sits on somebody's desk yes. for, you know, a couple of weeks and it's just unnecessary, but it, it just adds to everybody's stress. And 
another thing is being really conscious of your own stress signature. And what I mean about that is recognizing what happens in your body when you encounter stress. So for some people, this might manifest as a migraine. It might be lack of sleep. It might be IBS or RSI. But when you're aware of that, and you notice it happening, rather than applying those battle narratives of pushing on through and slaying Mm -hmm. it, you actually take a step back Mm -hmm. and think, this is my body giving me a signal that I really need to recuperate. And whether that means you you keep on going, but you bring back some of the things that you've possibly not done, like spending your hour going to the gym or taking five minutes in the morning to actually eat your breakfast rather than in front of a laptop, all of these things are are really important because ultimately in you know the corporate world there's a propensity to get really caught up in your head and solving problems and responding to clients needs and that can mean that you completely forget about your own needs and the signals that your body might be giving you to slow down so maybe slaying it is actually <laughs> recognizing your own stress signature and taking the time to address it also realizing that all of these, as you say, micro habits, these little things that we do or don't do on a daily basis actually add up to such a huge amount and recognizing that and trying to instill that in our teams. Maybe that's what's slaying it or smashing it in reality. Yeah, I mean, I think that's I think that's a great concept because, you know, there's been this badge for so long of presenteeism and I worked these long hours and I didn't get any sleep per night. And it it becomes like a badge of honor in the corporate world, which is really ridiculous when you think about it, because it can be really damaging to your overall well-being. So all of these issues, which have been highlighted by the surveys and the subsequent reports that we've talked about, must have significant implications for organizations. And as such, potentially, I suppose, an impact overall economic recovery. With issues like this, the potential for loss of talent is obviously evident. And the behaviours, some of which you've talked about, Nikki, that emerge under extreme strain, such as irritability or extreme perfectionism, may unintentionally negatively affect the broader workforce, not just senior leadership, and I suppose the organisational culture. Also, as you've mentioned, Nikki, in our experience as senior level disputes lawyers, often what are actually at their heart, um, if if one can identify them, um, well-being issues, if not nipped in the bud, can snowball into the senior level disputes I've Mm. talked about. I think one of the one of the outcomes from the uh, from the law care report is that actually regular check ins are extremely important for all levels of the of the organization, not just junior colleagues, but also in leadership. Um, And I think that's really interesting. I've seen many disputes develop at a senior level where underlying issues or tensions are left to fester without intervention channels of communication are closed off and by the time they're actually addressed it's as if there's no way back things have blown up out of all proportion and the individual's so worked up that they throw in everything that they've ever been aggrieved about into the dispute um from our perspective as employment lawyers this can lead to discrimination or whistleblowing or victimization claims and they're clearly a massive disruption to the business It seems to me from everything that you've said and what we've read in the reports that it's better to have the frank and possibly difficult conversation early during a regular check-in than deal with fallout. We also see that 
groups of employees who may start to feel alienated for various reasons, perhaps overwork, those false deadlines that you've talked about, or lack of autonomy or feeling undermined or undervalued, may decide to move elsewhere together as a team because they want to to find somewhere where they feel that they're more comfortable from a well-being perspective and, and valued as employees. That type of situation can obviously create a huge problem for the business and potentially even threatens its future. So I think just linking in the well-being issues that we've talked about with the types of situations that we see and unfold in, in disputes um, it is a really interesting um, link to make. So Nikki, I'm so grateful for 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 everything that that you've given us today and and the insight into the work that you've done. Um, I wonder if I can trouble you for your takeaways for optimizing senior executive and partner well-being. Of course. So, firstly, going back to that idea of stress signature, I think if everybody can be aware of that concept and start to be aware, because sometimes people are completely unaware, and until you have a crash then you don't really notice it. And of course, we're trying to avoid a crash. So that's really key. And the second thing is to consider well-being as something that requires ongoing management. I think historically, you know, international organizations, they may have great resources on company portals. But the fact is that those things aren't really used until there's an emergency. And it's a triage situation because people are driven by accomplishment and getting work done. So if we can build those things in and recognizing all the micro habits and practices that bolster your overall resilience and well-being, building a non-negotiable time for that will be, you know, a really big, a big help will actually be crucial, I believe. And then the last point is going back to this idea that remembering as a senior leader, your behavior has such a great impact on your employees and taking care of your own well-being is critical for building a culture of well-being. Thank you so much, Nikki. Um, and that brings us to the end of this episode of Foxed. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed it and found it as valuable as I have. In our next podcast, Rachel Brushfield, a career strategist and coach, will be joining our partner, Ivor Adair, to discuss the challenges of making a new start. That episode will cover the key considerations when contemplating resigning, changing career direction and developing a portfolio career. We hope you'll join us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Foxed and we hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to subscribe or find out more details on our website at foxlawyers.com.